Welcome back again. It's another Red Star Radio interview today. I'm joined by Dan Cohen, who's a journalist from the United States, who's covered a lot of the, uh, the shall we say, the, the fallout from the adventures of American imperialism, with, of course, British imperialism, though currently leaderless, um, always in tow. And he's here to, uh, with us today to talk about a recent piece he's written for Mint Press News, covering the, the latest developments from Haiti, which if you've not seen the news coming out of uh, the United States and Canada and the other usual suspects, um, there is open consideration of another U.S. armed intervention into Haiti. And Dan's going to be talking about that with us today. Dan, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm a, I'm a fan of the show and... Um... And uh, it's an honor to be to be invited on one of you know the the smarter podcasts out there. So I so I appreciate it. As I said, we invited Dan on today because uh, wanted to talk about the situation in Haiti. And there was a recent piece, Dan, that you put out on uh, on Mint Press, uh, covering um, the reasons behind uh, the current turbulence and the the agenda in play uh, inside the United States. So. Can you just summarize in brief what is what is currently happening inside Haiti and why is the the Biden administration and key Democrats in um, in the Senate and Congress considering another U.S. intervention into Haiti? Yeah, well, there's a major uprising. And by the way, the word I was looking for is articulate. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's what happens when when you have a, a toddler that's kicking you all night in the bed and uh, and you get five hours of sleep. So um but uh yeah so there's um a major uprising as you know probably everyone has seen by now in Haiti uh that was sparked by IMF imposed fuel price hikes and um the so-called interim prime minister Ariel Henry about 8 weeks ago went on TV and just said everyone has to get used to it and you know that's that um overnight fuel doubled in price so haiti which is the most impoverished country in the western hemisphere um basically just erupted <laughs> you know ariel Henry's calls for uh calm and just for people to to take it um were were shockingly ignored and mm. uh so so people went out protested and so you have these mass mobilize this mass mobilization from various political sectors and um and really just a true popular uprising and then at the center kind of at the center of it you have uh this this armed group an armed federation called the revolutionary forces of the G9 family uh and allies and the full name is revolutionary forces of the G9 families family and allies mess with one you mess with all which is kind of a mouthful so usually just call them the g9 mm -hmm. um and their their leader whose name is jimmy cherizier his nickname is barbecue and uh he's the target of the u.s and um he has created a blockade cherizier and his his armed group have they have a blockade on the Varro fuel terminal, which is the main uh, uh, fuel terminal for for all of Haiti? Roughly seventy percent of um, fuel comes, you know, imported through there, and they've shut it down. And not only have have Cherizier Barbecue and the G nine shut down this fuel terminal, there are numerous um, blockades at different intersections. The whole point, you know, to basically lock down the country so mm. the state can't function and they force out uh, this this U.S. puppet 
um, prime minister. And so um, the U.S. has actually been planning for this since uh, the assassination of the Haitian president, Jovenel Moise, in July 7th, 2021. Um, immediately after that, a um, a guy named a State Department official named Dan Foote was deployed to Haiti. He's basically a longtime, you know, kind of proxy force trainer overseer, you could call him. Um, he was in Afghanistan, Iraq, Colombia, you know, some of the um, where, of course, some of the most horrific human rights abuses and massacres have taken place, carried out by these U.S. proxies. And so they sent him down to Haiti because basically they knew that there is this popular unrest that kind of can explode at any moment. And at the center of it, this group, the G9, the, the U.S. embassy has been actually almost like imp- really impressively far ahead of everyone else in terms of recognizing the threat that they pose to U.S. empire and really the revolutionary potential of uh, of the G9. So they they uh, they deployed foot um, in order to train what they call an anti-gang SWAT task force, which is basically just a hit squad hmm. um, to target so-called gang leaders and and specifically Cherizie. Um I show in I show in, in my investigation that. Um, the uh, that that foot in uh, in Haiti's largest daily newspaper called for Cherizier to be hunted down. Um, and that's a position that he maintains. Hmm. So foot and basically the Washington establishment, they want to have kind of covert action, whether that's training a squad in the ha- Haitian National Police, which is very an, a very anemic force or um, having a hit squad go in and and go side by side with the Haitian national police, some kind of special forces. Um, And so the U S is, like I said, been, been planning this since um, the earliest that I could find was July, 2021, right after the assassination. But um, you know, possibly, I mean, obviously they've been targeting Cherizier since long before I, I uh, I've, you know, seen this kind of disinformation network going back to um, the the kind of beginning of Cherizier's transformation from he was actually a cop in the Haitian National Police, um, and you know he transformed basically underwent this radical uh, um, change to become the leader of this revolutionary group. You know he was he was an enforcer for the state and and highly regarded, and now he's you know putting his life on the line to to overthrow it. So um, that's kind of a quick synopsis. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is Ariel Henry, the the interim prime minister, he was essentially appointed by the United States, the core group, after the assassination of Jovenel Moise um, to be interim prime minister. There was never any election. I mean, Haiti's in Haiti is not only in in you know, crisis, you could call it. It's in kind of a legal crisis. There's there's he has, he doesn't have any mandate. There was never any vote, anything like that. And he's been interim prime minister for like 16 months. Mm. I mean, he's making Juan Guaido pretty jealous. So um, he does not have the legal authority to request a military intervention, a foreign military intervention. But he is anyway. So so it's 
you know, that's that's an important point is that there's <laughs> the U.S. puppet is requesting the U.S., you know, come in and and do the dirty work. So that's essentially what's happening right now. Right. So let's look at some of the the players in this particularly um particularly brutal game, Dan. So you've mentioned that Ariel Henry, who is the appointed prime minister, and you mentioned there that he was appointed essentially by this group called the core group. And that is, I believe that's the US and its immediate um, allies or closest vassal states who have an interest in Haiti, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's a uh, core group is, yeah, the US, um, France, Canada, and uh, I think uh and yeah, I think that's I think that's it. So yeah, I mean it's the former colonial powers, current you know, turned into the neo-colonial powers that that are uh, basically run the entirety of uh, the kind of Haitian bourgeois political uh, sphere. Right, and there is another group you mentioned in your your piece from Impress News. Uh, I believe called is it the Montana Accord, who are the kind of prefer they're the preferred choice of um certain elements of the um of the u.s imperialists into sort of uh impose what they called a haitian solution here yeah exactly so the montana accord is the bourgeois opposition to ariel henry there's a major divide in the ruling class um ariel henry comes from the kind of uh neo duvalurist uh the Haitian bald-headed party called the PHTK, neo-duvalurist meaning uh, referring to the the um, U.S.-backed dicta- uh, Duvalier dictatorship that um, ran from the 50s until the 80s when um, a, a popular uprising forced this dictator out. And then a few years later, um, Haiti actually held a free and popular election and elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the most popular president in a uh, Haiti's history. Um, so th- there's a political legacy of Duvalurist. Um, Ariel Henry is basically now the, the figurehead of that. And then his political opposition is kind of like the, the liberal intelligentsia oligarchy. Um, and this thing called the Montana Accord is basically an agreement that was struck uh, struck in the Montana Hotel, this fancy hotel up in in the hills, um, and it is essentially opposition political parties that have you know long existed and are extremely dirty themselves, uh, NGOs, so called civil society groups, and the whole point of this was to kind of give a a f- friendlier face. Um, you know, so they can say it's a Haitian led solution rather than such an obvious U.S. puppet like Ariel Henry. Um, and they've and the Montana Accord is very close to to the U.S. They're they're very heavily promoted by the U.S. They're headed by a figure figure um, named Magali Como Denis. And she and both Magali Como Denis and Ariel Henry, in turn, prime minister, were uh heavily involved in the 2004 U.S. orchestrated coup against uh, Aristide, which, you know, was just a, a nightmare and a total bloodbath um, and brought in a, a coup regime that Magali Como Denis served as culture minister in. So she's kind of like a Janine Añez of Bolivia, that right. sort of that sort of thing, who's now being held up by Washington as like the, you know, the 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 like leader of this savior group that's going to, you know, um, give Haiti a, a solution to its gang problem. 
Right. Um, so, you know, the State Department is totally behind them. Brian Nichols uh, is pushing for them. Um, the, the Council on Foreign Relations has a really um, important strategy paper promoting the Montana Accord. Um, and the reason the Montana Accord is so important for U.S. designs is because, like you said, it has what they keep calling it. It's, it's presented as a so-called Haitian-led solution. Um, and essentially, Ariel Henry, because he's seen as such, a, he by everyone, correctly so, is such an obvious dictator um, and, and U.S. puppet, um, it's essentially a liability for the U.S. because the U.S. knows that um, Haitians are very sensitive to foreign intervention, considering their history and mm-hmm. even, you know, going back to the Haitian Revolution and then all the way up until, you know, the current period, the two U.S. US orchestrated coup d'etats against Aristide, um, U.S. occupations, U.N. occupations. I mean, you even the politicians have to pay lip service to be an anti-intervention. Um, the the Montana Accord put out a statement saying, you know, we're we're opposed to this um, military intervention, even though, the, you know, the the second in command, Ted St. Dick, published an article in in Just Security a couple of weeks ago, calling for military intervention, <laughs> saying we need the U.S. to take a uh, um, uh, to restore security and take aggressive measures. You know, this kind of thing, these euphemisms. So. Um, nonetheless, that's basically, you know, overlooked for obvious reasons by U.S. media and and uh, kind of the establishment that's promoting the Montana Accord. Um, and they are seen as, you know, it, it, it's a much it, they're just, basically the U.S. is hoping that Haitians are gullible enough to believe in the Montana Accord that, you know, it's not because it's not so obvious. Um, but. You know, the Montana Accord wants to maintain the status quo of sh- extreme poverty for the masses and unbridled profits for uh, for a few wealthy oligarchs um, who, you know, most of whom live, you know, at, at least part time overseas. or They send their family overseas to the U.S., to Canada, to France, and and they just make great money um, off the backs of, of you know, the, all of these poor people uh, living in the slums in Haiti. And so just to um, give a bit more detail here, Dan, the the traditional um, products which uh, Haiti has been exploited for right the way back to the period of French colonialism has always has was um, sugar. I believe I'm right in saying that, wasn't it? Um, I think the sh- uh, sh- you know, I, I know less about this, that part than I should. I know. At least maybe the seventies, you know, in the kind of era of neoliberalism, basically when you know factories and were outsourced uh, mm. from the U.S., um, Haiti became really important because I mean that was basically the pl- the place that U.S. corporations could exploit more than anywhere uh, in in Latin America. This was, yeah. of course, before you know everything went to like China and and East, um, and so Haiti. You know, to this day, they still make electronics, you know, consumer goods. They make baseballs. Um, they really became kind of Haiti became the kind of picture of the neoliberal economy. Right. Um, there's a there's a fantastic documentary um, by my co-director of my new documentary, which we're trying to release next week, um, which you know we'll talk about. But but my uh, my 
partner in crime, Kim Ives, who, you know, anyone who's paid attention to Haiti knows who he is. He's been uh, um, he's a longtime uh, journalist, you know, who's, who's been in, working in Haiti since the 70s and very specialized um, on the subject and just one of the, the foremost experts. Um, and he was involved in a um, documentary called Bitter Cane that really kind of shows the ne- the neoliberal model that mm. you know you could basically apply to so many other countries um and it shows you know he, he they actually managed to get inside the sweatshops and show these people working in these brutal conditions making baseballs and you know, all, all all kinds of things like that so um it's and, and actually you know it still may, remains an important um place for for labor especially in the kind of you know this new cold slash heating up war um the bifurcation of of the global economy where the u.s is basically pulling its its corporations out of china it needs places for cheap labor so haiti obviously being so close is an important one so the most valuable commodity in fact that haiti has is its working class which can be subject to very brutal forms of hyper exploitation and with um, the signs gathering, there is gathering signs of a U.S. intervention potentially coming up here. I mean, in your view, Dan, you mentioned there the increasingly um, warm to hot new Cold War that is developing around us. Um, is this the sign of a new, a, even further U.S. imperialist aggression, not just in Haiti, but potentially across the Caribbean and Latin America as well as they seek to uh, find new sources of labor to hyper exploit now that they're trying to pull themselves out of China. Definitely, and the and Haiti is actually the test case for this. So the so um, the that Council on Foreign Relations um, strategy paper that I mentioned explains this really well. You can you know anybody can can look at it. I go through it in uh, in my video investigation. Um, there's a really good piece on Haiti Liberté, um, the the website that Kim Ives is the English editor mm-hmm. for. Um, and so, it's there's a a law that the U.S. passed in 2019 under the Trump administration. Congress passed it called the Global Fragility Act, and it's in the context of um, the 2017 national security strategy of so-called great power competition. You know that the war on terror is old news. Um, it's now time to focus on, you know, the big the big rivals, China and Russia hmm. um, and competing for for influence. And, you know, if, if the U.S. can't have its influence, then it'll just burn it all to the ground, you know, like uh, like Europe right now. Um, <laughs> so, well, um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. What were you say? I was going to say all is, is that's essentially what was done with Libya, wasn't it? Like they they couldn't um, impose a stable client regime. So chaos is preferable to having no control at all. Exactly. Exactly. It's a zero sum game. It's a really lovely stuff. This uh, imperialism. Um, So Haiti is the test case for this thing called the global fragility act. And the global fragility act is essentially a joint kind of, um, operation i guess you could call it between the state department usaid and the pentagon and it really heavily emphasizes the pentagon role using what they call small footprint operations so you know covert ops training proxies these kinds of things um and they're applying this 
they have they have several countries listed as as the first ones. Haiti being number one. Second, it's what you just said, Libya, um, and then they have Papua New Guinea, which um, I I don't really know the the political situation there. That's something I want to look into, but presumably it's a so called fragile state where the U.S. you know it's uh, uh, there's there's a possibility of U.S. losing control, and then there's several um, uh, African countries: Mozambique, Togo, Ghana, um, I think Benin, mm-hmm. and uh, one or two more. Uh, mostly in, in West Africa, and these are all considered fragile states. And Haiti again is is the first um, is is the test case. This is where they're going to apply it first to see if it works. So then, if they can succeed with this this um, this new kind of paradigm, um, then it'll be applied all over the world. Is the idea mm. um, there? I was in a. Um, house foreign affairs committee hearing like two weeks ago on haiti and i mean it was remarkable actually you saw i saw um these ned funded phony human rights figures talking about you know what's happening in uh in haiti and and this is why we need you know um this is why we need to have our people in power um and then this this uh, member of congress um from Southern California comes on and she says, what do you all know talking to the Haitians? What do you all know about the global fragility act? Cause this is a, you know, this is our, our, I think she called it like a major pivot in terms of, huh. uh, of policy. And, and they said, no, we don't know anything like they've never heard of this. And these are supposed to be the figures that are part of this Haitian led solution. And, they, and they're just like, we're, we don't know anything. And she says, Oh, uh oh wow okay i'm gonna go back to the biden administration with that and so it's obvious that this whole haitian-led solution is is just the u.s leading from behind and these haitians don't even know you know what they're really getting into these like you know hand-picked couple of of uh a handful of of haitians um that the u.s wants to kind of use as as lipstick for its pig Mm. um so, so real quick. So basically, this Global Fragility Act is like the key thing uh, that's being applied to Haiti, and the Montana Accord is is the key part of it that the U.S. needs in order to implement it. Yeah. So you have they have to have the um, the liberal uh, NGO human rights face to this thing. Uh, it's better to have them than some um, typ- uh, stereotypical dictator in the old um, Papa Doctor Valier mode. Um, because they need to sell this thing to um, liberal members of Congress, but also it's better for attracting perhaps in- investors into um, exploiting Haitian labor if they've got this prettified government there rather than the iron fist regime. But uh, what would your opinion on 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 this be, Dan? It, the the liberals in Haiti don't seem to, from my from my view on it, have much of a social base. And won't be able to deliver anything really at all for the Haitian working class, and therefore there'll be another Haitian working class revolt within a few years, and they'll be back again with the Duvalierists because they're the ones who are prepared to come in and just use brute force, no matter what the case. So this uh, liberal solution that they're working on is just a a giant deception. Exactly, it's you know it's it's like a stopgap measure to just keep the game going. Um, as long as they can and stave off 
a popular uprising from turning into a revolution. But, you know, the difference is now, um, you know, during like the UN occupations, or even if you just look at the history of Haiti from um, the the assassination of the founding father, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who basically wanted to um, redistribute wealth uh, among the masses and was assassinated for that. You look at the assassination of uh, Charlemagne Perrault, who was the leader of the resistance in the to the 1915 uh, U.S. invasion of Haiti, um, he, and then again now, you you see that, or, and and I'm sorry, and then again, in you know, if you look at the early 2000s, kind of popular figures who were derided as as gang leaders or bandits is the term that's used a lot. Um, they, the difference now is that the G9 is has gotten to a point where it's um, very strong. It's not just a single guy in one neighborhood. It's not only is it, you know, the original, the, the nine is for nine, basically self neighborhood, self-defense groups hmm. that have developed um, and they've un- and united into a, a federation uh, about a little more than two years ago. I think in April, 2020, I think they, they uh, announced their federation um, and they've also um, had on and off truces with other armed groups and and they've really you know Jimmy Cherizier the leader of the group really emphasizes not fighting with other um, with other armed groups that are you know from kind of uh, poor poor neighborhoods um, because even even you know once he has he has fought with and there has been fighting um, he he constantly is appealing like let's make peace let's let's not fight each other let's forget about the you know what's happened before the people that have been killed because you know we're from the same class we're not we're not enemies the enemies are the the bourgeoisie um who you know who are who just treat us as as a piggy bank um so the g9 controls the according to the un like 60 percent of port-au-prince um, it's it's huge, and that's why the U.S. is so focused on destroying it. Not only the U.S., but of course the the comprador bourgeoisie in Haiti who are totally threatened by it. Whether that's you know the Ariel Henry, PHTK, neo Duvalierist sectors, or the the liberal opposition, they're totally united against uh, the G9. Um, they're just kind of you know trying to battle for power, but. Um, you know, the G9 is not going to be able to wouldn't be able to stand up kind of to go toe to toe with U.S. military. But, you know, as as popular resistance groups have often done, have essentially always done, they um, even despite being militarily outmatched, they can often succeed through tactics and strategy and the fact that they kind of meld into the neighborhoods that they're from and and uh, make it difficult to distinguish from the population and then they have popular support so so haiti is really i think on the brink um of a revolution and the u.s is is desperate to stop it and this is the time-honored tactic of all imperialists but the u.s is the most uh, obviously the most prominent these days which is to deride your opponent and delegitimize them any way you can you call them a terrorist you call them a gangster Whereas if Cherizier was just simply a gangster, the U.S. wouldn't have much of a problem with it because the U.S. empire has had absolutely no problem dealing with 
uh, gang leaders and various forms of organized crime, be it Mexican cartels at various points or Colombian drug cartels at various points. So it's clear that this guy, um, Cherizier, is more than just simply a gang leader. Otherwise, it would he wouldn't necessitate this kind of panicked response from the United States, would he? Exactly. That's that's such an important point. And uh, yeah, your your intuition that clearly has been guided by, um, you know, this is this is not your first rodeo um, <laughs> is is spot on. I mean, there has been a powerful disinformation campaign coming from the U.S. Embassy and National Endowment for Democracy funded so-called human rights groups. Um, particularly there's one called the Haitian National Network for Human Rights. And it's it's um, director is a guy named Pierre Esperance, who um, was actually he, he's a close contact to the U.S. Embassy. He was heavily involved. He, he basically invented a massacre in 2004 um, in the lead up to the to the 2004 coup d'etat, U.S. coup d'etat against Aristide. Mm. And now he's doing the same thing. He's essentially inventing massacres and saying that Jimmy Cherizier and, and members of the G9 um, have carried these out. And, you know, what my documentary shows and actually an, an investigation I'm trying to crank out in the next couple of days, just because the timing is so essential right now, is these massacres were not, there's no evidence that these were massacres, and there's a lot of evidence showing otherwise. Um, So that's part of the demonization campaign that has made people either believe that Cherizier is uh, this mass murderer, he likes to um, uh, burn people, and that's how he got his, his name, Barbecue, that's what they said in in a, in a vice piece, um, which is totally bogus. He got the nickname barbecue because growing up uh, in his, in his neighborhood, there were a bunch of other kids named Jimmy and his mother uh, was a, she sold um, grilled meats on the street. So they called him barbecue. So that's his nickname. But I mean, it's kind of good for, it's a good story for vice. Cause the name, you're not, you know, kind of sounds scary barbecue. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's totally demonized. Every single thing you see in the media is, you know, accuses him of of these massacres um, that that I mean, my investigation show just did not were not massacres at all. There mm-hmm. were actually there were um, battles between armed groups. There were confrontations, fights between armed groups that have very specific political contexts that you know are important to examine. But we're not massacres by any stretch of the imagination. Um, And so, you know, it's like if you look at Syria, you know, they want I think that's a good example that a lot of anti-imperialists are familiar with. Um, The opposition, when the opposition carries out acts of violence against in in government uh, held territory, no one wants to talk about it. You know, the media will completely ignore it. But when the um, Syrian army or its allies, you know, the Russians or or Iranians or Hezbollah do anything, it's suddenly like they're carrying, they're committing genocide uh, against Sunni Muslims, which is, you know, kind of laughable on the face of it, but it's, but it's totally bogus. So they, so they basically want to inflate kind of, you know, one side to make it look like, oh, all this violence is being committed by them while ignoring the victims and then vice versa on the, on the other side. Um, And that's the same thing they're doing in Haiti by saying, Cherizier is this monster who has carried out all these uh, massacres, yet they will never talk about the victims inside 
um, Cherizier's neighborhood who are being terrorized by, you know, what you can call gangs. I mean, I, I generally try to avoid the term gangs because it's pejorative and kind of loaded. Um, but in, if we if if gangs just means criminal armed groups, there definitely are numerous gangs in Haiti. And these are actually Cherizier's uh, enemies. These are the groups that he fights with. So this is totally to your point. I could point I could I could point to um, there's a there's a, a gang leader named Izo who uh, just two days ago, he his man um, killed a police um, uh, inspector in cold blood, just came up and shot him, you know, not even in a battle or anything. Um, they in March 2021, they wiped out an entire uh, SWAT unit, killed like six guys Um uh, six cops. Um, you have the 400 Mauzo, which you know they became kind of more known in in Western media last year when they they kidnapped 16 American missionaries and one Canadian and held them for ransom. Um, that they're not mentioned in any of these UN Security Council hearings or any of these you know State Department reports or the human rights groups that are funded by the NED. And there and there are numerous groups like this. So, um, you know. It's amazing. The, you know, the, the U.S. wants to talk about gangs, but the only gang, so-called gang they talk about is the anti-gang, the anti-crime federation that uh, that is that has been formed. And uh, it, I mean, it's it just says everything. Um, so those those criminal gangs operate basically as proxies of um, the the compador bourgeoisie. They're um, they're often paid by them to do dirty work. Um, and then, and then, you know, which are in turn, of course, proxies for the U S so, mm. so there are criminal gangs and they're just basically doing the dirty work for, uh, for empire. Well, this is the same, um, set of scenarios that has been played out over and over again, which is that of course, imperialism always employs the services of the most desperate and violent elements of what in Marxist terms we'd call like, uh, the lumpen lumpens or lumpen proletarians, and this is not just in Haiti. This is true in Syria. This is true also in Ukraine with the uh, Banderist uh, elements and the neo-fascists. Um, these elements are always employed by imperialism um, because they are the most reactionary, desperate, and violent people who can be employed to carry out unspeakable acts against their own population. Uh, it's a classic tactic. Whilst at the same time, the never-ending stories of the phony massacres uh, take place. Um, you mentioned Syria there, Dan, but I remember the stories of that there was Gaddafi's army was going to carry out massacres in Benghazi literally within minutes unless a bombing campaign was started immediately. And then there was a quiet admission years later from the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Select Committee that such a massacre was not going to take place uh, there was no plans for it. Uh, Gaddafi's army had the exact opposite orders, in fact. And, oh, dear, wasn't it sad that we've said all these lies? But by then, the damage is done. Right, exactly. Oh, it turned out that was that was an enormous lie, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and all those people got killed. But I, I guess that's why, you know, pencils every racers. Move on, everyone. Yeah. Um, now is not the time to dwell. Um, <laughs> right, right. Everyone uh, makes mistakes. We're all human. Don't be uh, rude, as AOC would say. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is violence. Yes, words of violence. Um, you know, getting machine gunned by a, an American Marine—that's not violence. But there you go. Um, you mentioned there a couple of times, Dan, um, the figure of uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide, um, who 
was a incredibly popular figure in Haitian politics, elected twice as the leader of the country and overthrown twice by the American Empire. Can you outline in brief like the um his um two administrations and how they both met the exact same end and the the effects upon Haiti that that has had? Sure. Um maybe um I do want to actually talk about you mentioned the lumpen proletariat and and that's it's a it's a really important point and something that's kind of unique about Haiti. We can save that for after and we can talk about Aristide first or however you like. Uh, you you want to develop that point about uh, the lumpen proletariat? Go ahead with that, and then we'll we'll move on to Aristide afterwards. Okay, yeah. So you know, the G nine actually is uh, of of the lumpen proletariat class. Um, uh, it's you know the 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 young men who make up its its ranks um are you know they're not they're they're generally not of the working class you know working in the factories they're young men who are essentially discarded from society and for so long you know depending on the neighborhood um these these young people would kind of get involved in whatever uh way to survive there is so um you know joining a criminal network and um possibly or 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 whatever it is um but now Cherizier has has kind of upended that paradigm. And, so, and for so many years, the lumpen proletariat um, have been kind of used to, uh, by by the ruling class to attack the working class. Um, and, you know, the, the thing I would I would point to is if you look at what uh, Franz Fanon and also um, Mao said about the proletariat is i think mao called them um he said they have incredible something i mean i'm paraphrasing here but something like they have incredible revolutionary um potential however they need guidance so they can be dangerous if they don't have guidance but there's there's great potential for them he, i think he kind of recognized the the potential of the lumpen proletariat and then and then um franz fanon said a, a similar thing and I mean, my understanding of uh, the the revolution of in Algeria um, was the 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 lumpen proletariat um, very much led the way. Were 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 essential in that. So there's a similar situation in Haiti, uh, where basically Cherizier has has taken these armed groups that have um, done dirty work for uh, local oligarchs. Um, they have kidnapped. Uh, they've they've raped they have done all kinds of horrible things and he's taken whatever he can from them some of some of which were criminal gangs and some of them not and said we're not gonna no more crime if you if you join the g9 you cannot commit any more crimes and if you do you're out and so that's one of the ways he's gained popular support is like wow people don't want to be terrorized they don't want their stores to be looted or extorted or um, or, you know, they're uh, potentially be, you know, to be murdered or raped in the street. Um, and so Cherizier is not from a, you know, traditional Marxist background or, you know, he's he's not um, a, uh, uh, you know, like a like a Che, um, che Guevara, but he's very much inspired by Che Guevara. He's inspired by the the revolutionaries of the region. He's also inspired by Mandela. He talks about them. He talks about Hugo Chavez. Um, 
And so he has kind of undergone this transformation from guy who was defending the system, believed in the system, though saw its flaws, and then was basically burned by the system. Um, he was scapegoated for a a police operation that went awry, and basically the political class, um, actually the 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 any defunded human rights group came out with this report saying that this this operation in a neighborhood called Grand Ravine was actually a massacre and that they summarily executed people. Um, there was a report in the Intercept that said the same thing, and there's no evidence of any of that. It's not. You know, there's no we we don't know exactly what did happen. Cherizier's version of events is that it was a um a they got ambushed by gang members and got into a firefight with with these with these gangsters and some innocent people may have gotten killed. And so Cherizier was blamed for it. Then he's you know he's after after being thanked in this in the ceremony with the the police commissioner and the prime minister. And saying, oh, condolences for the cops, you know, your fellow cops that were killed. All of a sudden, Cherizier is blamed for it. Like he carried out this horrible massacre. So that alienates him from uh, from the police. He eventually gets fired because he refuses to show up to to work. And then it starts this process of him becoming um, a a popular leader in his neighborhood who not only um, defended the neighborhood, as he had even when he was a cop, which is why he became a cop in the first place. So he could defend, you know, his kind of, you know, stamp out crime. But he um, they institute this program, uh, a social program. They have uh, uh, where they f- make food. They provide clean water for for the people. They have um, educational activities. They have uh, um, all kinds of things for, for the people that really improve. They clean the streets, for example. And they call this Another Vision. That's the name of their social program. And that's actually the name of the documentary that we're releasing next week. We, we borrowed it from the social program. So um, so in that way, Cherizier, you know, even though he's not kind of trained as a classic revolutionary that, that we're kind of used to, he's very much through experience has, um, has, has taken on um, a revolutionary role and you know, I guess a revolution is defined whether it succeeds or not. And who knows? I mean, he could, you know, get killed at any time. Hope, I mean, I don't think he would sell out um, having, you know, interviewed him and and spent an incredible amount of hours pouring over his interviews and, and this kind of thing. But um, I mean, he's it, it's it's just a different thing than than we're used to. Well, yes, and as we covered earlier, Dan, uh, um, if he if he was a, um, a guy who could be co-opted or bought off, then we wouldn't even know his name, you know, because exactly. the the the, uh, the U.S. embassy would have funneled some discreet funds to him through an NGO, and that would be the end of it. Um, but the um, to return to return to the um, the subject of um, Aristide, who I can I can remember the um, his overthrow in both occasions. Um, because I, I was just about paying attention to the news, and I think it was 94 when he was first overthrown, and then I remember the the next coup, and the same language was used, the sort of vague talk of, oh, he's associated with violence, there's corruption, that kind of thing, and therefore the US has to go in to secure things. And But it masked the reality of a man who was this tremendously popular figure with the, the Haitian working class and poor, 
who was essentially destroyed by U.S. imperialism because he wanted to make the smallest changes to get to afford dignity to the vast majority of Haitians. I mean, am I am I summarizing uh, correctly that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at, you know, he was a he was a, a priest of liberation theology who was not in politics at all, and then um, he basically started gaining popular following by talking about the conditions that people were were subjected to in the in the slums in a way that you know no political figure um at the time had done and would do and so all of a sudden he goes from just a priest to this um incredibly popular uh political figure and leader of of was of what's called the Lavalas party and Lavalas means flood and so they're you know, he would be in this, they would flood the streets, like thousands and thousands of people from the slums, just, just a sea of people with, with Aristide in the middle as one of them, um, sometimes even on horseback and, and, you know, it all of a sudden he, he wins this election um, by a huge margin against, uh, you know, something like 13 different candidates and, and so he becomes the president and the U.S. is just totally shocked. Um, and obviously, you know, a, a guy who who wants to change the situation that people are living in uh, has to go. So um, soon after the the U.S. Uh, orchestrated um, a coup d'etat and and flew him out. They, they just removed him um, in the middle of the night. And so a couple of years later. The situation is essentially destabilizing again in 1994, and the U.S. Bill Clinton actually brings him back. They mm. say, I mean, in my my understanding, and this is you know this is you can you can look at a, there's a really great book uh, called "Damning the Flood," you know, a, a reference to Lavalas meaning flood, mm. um, that that explains this whole history but it's i i my understanding is that it was kind of to stave off revolution that they brought kind of the social democrat back you know who right. the guy who was saying let's reform the system so people get their fair share um and so the so okay let's put him back in and then <clears throat> he you know was in there he was in there for some years and then he was kind of going along with the U.S. program, but then kind of resisted against it. And the U.S., you know, he kind of he kind of played a, a double game with them in order to to stay in power. And then eventually, the U.S. Uh, gets rid of him again in in two thousand four for for a second time. Um, and that and when that happened, uh, you had basically death squads. Um, and and this disinformation machine, the same the same one that's operating today, inventing massacres, and so with 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 this coup, they they invent um, Pierre Esperance, who I mentioned before, and his his network, which used to be then it was called the National Coalition for Haitian Rights. Um, they invented a massacre in a town called La Cerie, um, in 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 a neighborhood called Saint Mark near La Cerie. And there was a clash between basically um, one pro-Aristide group and and another anti-Aristide paramilitary. And so then the prime minister at the time, Yvonne Neptune, comes in and gives this statement saying, oh, we need, you know, we need order restored and calm. And I'm saying this, this actually in a much more excited way than he said it. You know, he's he's such a 
understated guy, you know, we need, we need calm and we need. Um, and so that was actually used as evidence. His statement calling for calm and, and restoring security was used as evidence that the Aristide government had ordered a genocide. And mm-hmm. so that report became um, essential for, for the U S and its proxy. Um, they overthrew the the uh, Aristide government, they rounded up um, former government officials using that report, just sticking them in prison without ever putting them on trial. Um, they um, arrested and killed like 8,000 Lavalas activists. So it was just a total purge. Um, and that's essentially, you know, the condition that Haiti has been in ever since. Mm-hmm. So if you look at you know they had they they had a neo duvalierist regime come in um after that um and and that's what's essentially ruled since since then um right and so if you look at the speeches of aristide and you compare them to the speeches of barbecue they're very similar mm. in terms of talking about the conditions you know i mean it's it's almost like the obvious things like people you know can't uh can't eat they can't, can't send their children to school they don't have uh, uh sanitation the, the basic necessities that people live the difference is um aristide wanted to kind of reform and and you know find a compromise and say we're going to do this non-violently we're going to do this through just people power whereas Cherizier, well as as uh my my colleague kim i've said it's aristide with a gun i, I love that quote hmm. um and he's saying the same thing, but he has a huge rifle in his hand and he's he's it's almost like he's he's has this righteous anger and 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 it's really powerful. And you see it. You'll see it in, in my documentary, in our documentary, Another Vision. Um, and he's just not going to take no for an answer and he's willing to die for his cause. So, um, I mean, it's it's just you can see the transition from. Well, we we democratically elected this guy and, uh, you know, this priest who believed in nonviolence. Um, and then the U.S. cooed him twice and then wiped and, and basically assassinated and imprisoned his base and had uh, military occupations that were a nightmare for the population. So, of course, they're not going to go for it again. Of course, there's going to be some figure who's going to rise up and say, no, we're not going to let this happen again. We're not going to let it's not going to be what you you know, you're not going to get away with this again. And so that's what Cherizier represents in uh, in my opinion. Well, it's a uh, they have rendered uh, um, this the nation into an impossible situation for the overwhelming majority of the population. It's they followed the line that the U.S. laid out, which is uh, the, the bourgeois democratic line. They dared to elect somebody who the U.S. and their own comprador ruling class didn't didn't uh, didn't like um who they regarded as a threat to their interests so they got rid of him twice and so well what did they expect other than that the next time it would come with um organized armed violence but this time from the from the poverty-stricken part of the haitian population so um the the bourgeoisie and the american imperialists have really no one to blame but themselves for any political violence that occurs in Haiti from the oppressed side of things, because this was a path that they, the only path that they left open to the Haitians. Exactly. Exactly. They've given them no other choice. Yeah. Haitians, like you said, Haitians tried to do it through 
bourgeois democracy and and succeeded until until they didn't until the u.s put the kibosh on that and so what else is there and uh you know i mean it's it's interesting because Cherizier is not a guy who who wants violence. Like I said, he's constantly issuing these these calls for calm and appeals for peace between uh, the neighborhoods, um, but it's really being forced on him. And you know he's been careful in his speeches to not you know call out the U.S. Empire and you know those are my enemies and this kind of thing. But as he's been targeted by the U.S., he's been forced to kind of face reality um, that and and only recently he's, you know, he's quoted in, in Haiti in Haiti Liberté is saying, you know, if the U.S. Uh, tramples Haitian soil, then then we'll be prepared with tactics and strategy. And so that represents kind of a a new phase for Cherizier, um turning into an anti-imperialist leader rather than um, a, a kind of popular nationalist leader. Well, before we um, before we move on to, I want to talk about your your, do- your upcoming documentary, Dan. I wanted to just pick up on one thing, which I think needs to be emphasised here, which is the role of the UN in Haiti. Now, right. the the UN, as far as I remember it, were running the essentially what was an occupation force in Haiti for many years. Not only were they associated with many crimes, including a horrific catalogue of sex crimes that were committed against the the Haitian female population, but also they were implicated in a in a cholera outbreak in Haiti. So, can you just um, go over the, the the role the UN has played in Haiti? Because I think this is very important. Because where in my country and yours, the the left still speaks in the language of support the UN, strengthen the role of the UN. Give us the give us the lowdown on what is what is the role that the UN plays in countries like Haiti. I don't think there's a country that hates the UN as much as Haiti does, and for very good reason. The UN has occupied Haiti twice and used horrible, extreme brute force to uh, carry out its occupation and and repress the masses um, and prevent them from rising up. Um, they the the UN um, so-called peacekeepers were in Haiti from 1993 to I believe 1996, um, and then again from 2004 until I think 2017. And now there is a UN office called BINU, but um, it's an advisory role to the uh, to the Haitian government, um, which still plays an important part, but it's not an occupation force. Um, though you know, there's there's very much a, a movement that that we can discuss. There's there's a political. Um, the, basically, the U.S. wants to use the UN to to occupy Haiti, to invade and occupy Haiti. Mm. Um, the crimes of the UN. <sighs> occupiers i don't even want to use the term peacekeepers it's such a it's such an bogus orwellian term the crimes of the un occupation are are horrendous i mean assassinations um you know countless people killed um as you said horrible sex crimes there were not only of women but of of boys too there were hundreds of peacekeepers involved in you know what they call uh, child sex trafficking rings but I mean, that's even that's a bit of a euphemism for me. There's no such thing as child sex. That's called child rape. Children yeah. can't give consent. That's just that's raping children. 
Um, and it wasn't, you know, a one-off. It, this was not some isolated phenomenon. It, it, there were, like I said, hundreds involved, and there was very, very few who were ever punished. Um, so it was total impunity for these for these peacekeepers who were brought in. Yeah, I said peacekeepers. Sorry, <laughs> um, uh, who were brought in from Chile, from Brazil, from Pakistan, um, and and just committed unspeakable crimes. And, you know, assassinated the the resistance leaders, um, figures like uh, Dred Wilme, who's kind of a, you know, a, a similar to to Cherizier, was a popular leader um, who who believed in armed struggle. And he was he was killed by by the U.N. occupation. Um, and so the U.N. is totally reviled. And now the U.S. wants to go back to the U.N., and uh, use it to to put down the G9 and, and this popular uprising. But the difference is the main difference is it's not, you know, the early 2000s anymore. China and Russia are not going along with UN, U, uh, U.S. plots, regime change plots and allowing them to push through the U.N. I mean, um, after Libya, I think that that really changed. You know, Russia woke up and China China too. And so the UN, uh, the US has put forward a draft resolution. Um, there's there's one currently in in discussion among at the UN Security Council that um, calls for not only uh, sanctions against international sanctions against Cherizier, um, who's under Magnitsky sanctions, US sanctions, um, but also for a um, a military uh, occupation a military invasion of Haiti they don't hmm. use that exact term they say you know something like a um, an intervention and force and you know they use more flowery terms of course um, but the UN the the Russians and and Chinese are have both um, at the initial uh, public meeting where they discussed it um, the Russians and Chinese both expressed uh, their opposition to uh, use of military force, and so what the UN, what the U.S. Um, is proposing, is that the U.N. Security Council basically deputize um, an, a a U.N. member country, um, which my sources say would be probably Canada or Mexico, to basically go in and uh, and carry out this this kind of um, hit job against Cherizier and the G nine. Uh, itself. So rather than, you know, having troops from all over the world and the UN oversees it and Russia and China can have some influence, the US is basically asking the UN Security Council to just, you know, rubber stamp uh, another country going and doing it, which is totally against uh, international law. Um, I, I talked to Alfred Desaius, um, the who's a, you know, top um, international uh, human rights law expert, and he he just explained that it's. I mean, I, I can look at his quote, but it's totally um, against the law. So, so the U.S. I think is going to kind of run into a wall there, um, and and then we'll see what you know what else it comes up with. But the U.S. is is pushing this resolution. Sadly, Mexico is on board with it, which I don't totally understand why the AMLO government, who I you know generally is is pretty progressive and plays a positive role in the region, um, you know, provided asylum to Evo Morales after the coup. Um, yeah, sadly, they're going along with this with this resolution. But uh, the UN, 
you know, the UN option does not appear to be in the cards for the US. And so I don't know what they will do otherwise. I don't know what the next step is. There's talk about, you know, the organization of American states, which Castro called uh, the uh, Ministry of the Colonies, just a tool of the US, of course, Mm -hmm. in Latin America. Um, If they can get enough members to agree uh, to support some kind of um, military force, then that's a possibility. But with, you know, the kind of the the return of of several pink tide governments, it's kind of hard to imagine that that would happen. So um, it doesn't seem like the U.S. has any very um, prominent or really good options for what it wants to do in Haiti and may end up either just sending a uh, kind of covert, um, you know, black ops squad to, to do the, the dirty work or, you know, that's, that's what I would think the U S's move would be. Um, Dan foot, the, the former U S special envoy to Haiti who, you know, trains those kind of guys. He told me that if that doesn't happen, and this is in that, that piece that you mentioned that I did, Hmm. um, that it's either that or the U S sends like 25,000 Marines and has a full on occupation. Um, but you know, it's obviously the political, uh, there's not a a lot of political appetite for, for a kind of Bush style invasion, um, of Haiti, especially because you know the the U.S. is busy uh, fighting, um, you know a a pseudo proxy war in Ukraine, and keeps talking about going to war with China. So, so it's hard to know where this will go. But um, I mean, honestly, it's just all really unclear uh, how how this is going to go for the U.S. Yeah, um, clearly they uh, want to do something, but they're aware also of the. The limitations that are on them at the moment, plus from the purely propaganda point of view, um, waging a proxy war in Ukraine, allegedly to defend Ukrainian sovereignty whilst launching a mass invasion of a poverty-stricken neighboring nation that poses absolutely no threat to you. Um, Even some of the people in the Biden administration who are lacking in self-awareness would be perhaps reticent about being that blatant at this time. Yeah, exactly. I mean... uh... You know, that's why. So when Tony Blinken was um, after Biden won, after Biden won the election and and Tony Blinken was either I don't know if he was I don't think he was appointed as secretary of state yet, but he was either going to be national security advisor, which is what everyone expected, or going to be secretary of state. He he actually went on um, the former CIA director's podcast. Imagine that the CIA director <laughs> has a podcast. That's your competition. You know, when I said you're one of the smarter, smartest podcasts, he's like, you know, a few levels below you. So, so, you know, just Which keep it one up. Which one is that? Is it, um, is it George Tenet or, um, no, uh, it? it's Michael Morell. <laughs> it's, it's a, he puts his Russiagate stories on there, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just so obviously like, oh, yeah, he, he's no longer affiliated with the CIA. This is really just his, uh, his, his opinion. Um, <laughs> so it's and it's on cbs it's called intelligence matters um clearly not (laughs) (laughs) right exactly um so he he had tony blinken on and blinken you know is like i mean of course in the in the election season it's all like are you going to end the war in the you know the kind of progressives there's biden and the war in in yemen get out of iraq all this stuff and so tony blinken has to kind of play along uh, to this anti-war sentiment. And he says, well, 
we're going to end the endless wars. But, you know, let's not kind of paint with too broad of a brush here. We're, you know, we're going to have more covert operations. And so that's it's like the Obama doctrine um, of, of you know, secret ops and, and dirty stuff that that liberal intelligentsia prefer to just not know about to keep the empire running. Yeah. And so that's, you know, so that's, of course, what Biden has done to, um, you know, the Obama 2.0 administration. Well, so, yes. And Obama seems to have a large influence within the administration, given that the the man who was supposed to be president is, shall we say, clearly lacking in the capacity to actually run things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was I was under the the uh, impression that that's Russian disinformation, that <laughs> when, when Biden has baby brain, that I should just close my eyes and and put my fingers in my ears and just shout. Russian disinformation. Yeah, but, um, those are all deep fakes done by the FSB um, <laughs> that just make Biden look as if he's shaking hands with with fresh air. It's um, it's crazy how they get those into CNN and and you know Fox News and stuff. It's and and in live press conferences. I mean, Putin's uh, intelligence services are just un- uh, you know uh, off the charts. He's that good, but also losing the war in Ukraine so badly that he's going to explode a nuke on his own territory. Um, I'm, I lose track of these things, Dan. I really do. Um, now, you uh, talked about um, you've got a, a documentary coming up. Um, show, uh, I want I want you to give the give you the opportunity to talk about that and like uh, what what what's this consisting of? Uh, what are you covering in this uh, film you've got coming out? Yeah, so um, the film is called Another Vision Inside Haiti's Uprising, and it basically covers you know, sort of the background of the current moment, um, it shows, so there are three episodes. The first episode is is largely devoted to debunking the disinformation campaign that the U.S. has waged against Cherizier and the G9, kind of, and, and at the same time showing um, his background and how he went from, you know, straight arrow cop to, to revolutionary leader um, that he is today. Um, and then it also shows some of the terrorist attacks on his neighborhood, um, how his how residents in his neighborhood have been terrorized. And then the second episode shows um, the formation of the G9. Um, it, and we expose a, a massacre um, in his neighborhood that was carried out in his neighborhood by the police and and its kind of allied gangs um, that the human rights groups have completely ignored. And then the third episode shows Cherizier. Um, not only becoming a target, really becoming a target of U.S. empire, but also him um, carrying out what he calls the mental revolution, which is, you know, ideological struggle, going through the poorest um, slums of Port-au-Prince and, and talking to people and kind of getting them, you know, what, what, one of the things he talks about is that people are, are complacent because they're afraid to die. And so he's kind of trying to get people to to wake up and not be complacent with their conditions. And so it's really incredible footage that we actually um, are really privileged to have because it's, you know, we, when you watch it, it's something that editing this, you know, Kim and I realized there's no way we could have gotten this footage ourselves. So we had a, um, a friend in Haiti um, named Amadi who was filming with um with barbecue with Cherizier as he kind of went through the slums and did this stuff and he's Haitian and so you know you would you would kind of get a different thing if it were outsiders if it were like 
two white guys walking around, you know, the poor areas, people would probably respond differently. And so it's such a kind of genuine view into this kind of revolutionary um, ideological struggle taking place um, in, in, you know, just one of the poorest, most neglected areas in the entire world. Um, and so we're, you know, we're just in a total race to get this uh, documentary out for obvious reasons. And I've been, we've been working on it since, um, since shortly after the, the president, Jovenel Moise was assassinated in July, 2021, basically when that happened, I, I was working at Mint Press News then, and I interviewed Kim, who I had known about about the assassination. And he said, well, you know, you have to understand it in context of this uprising that's taking place and this guy, Jimmy Cherizier. And so we finished the interview and I asked him, like, Kim, can we go meet this guy? Could we interview him? I mean, this is a huge story. And we went down a week or two later and then we went down again and filmed more and i've just spent most of the last year um devoted to getting this this film out and it's you know just been an incredible amount of labor and but we're you know now the moment has like arrived that after all these days and hours sitting in you know this bedroom converted into an office in my house just editing and editing and subtitling and uh, now the moment has arrived that like, okay, this this thing where I felt like I was in this kind of corner going crazy while everyone's talking about Ukraine is suddenly extremely relevant. So we're just trying to like birth this thing and get it out um, as soon as possible. So I still don't quite have a release date, but um, we'll I'll announce it, of course, on social media, wherever, you know, if you follow me on at Dan Cohen 3000. I also just joined Minds today. If anyone uses the network Minds. M-I-N-D-S. I'm at Dan Cohen there. It seems like kind of a cool network where there's no censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're gonna have this thing out ASAP and uh and you know, hope everyone will will check it out to kind of understand the the context of the moment right now. Excellent stuff. So uh be sure to uh follow Dan on Twitter or on Minds to be kept up to date as to when this what I'm sure will be a very important uh series of films is coming out. Uh, but Dan, uh, it's been a really illuminating discussion that we've had today. I think that the audience is going to get a lot out of it. And um, be sure to read the investigation that Dan did recently for Mint Press News. And Dan, well, before we uh, wrap this up, is there anything else you want to rec- recommend that people read, either from yourself or about the subjects of Haiti, before we before we close the interview? Yeah, you know, I'd recommend. I mean, my my piece is very helpful for the current moment. Um, check out Haiti Liberté. I mean, it's a, it is, it's the largest weekly newspaper in Haiti. It's run by a bunch of Haitians, um, both in Haiti and outside of Haiti. And also my, my colleague Kim Ives is, is the English language editor. Um, and they produced, uh, the documentary and that's, you know, they, Haiti Liberté turned Kim on to the barbecue story. Um, and of course, Kim turned me on it. So they've really led the way here. And they've been doing the by far the best journalism on Haiti uh, for for many years. So um, any anything you're looking for on Haiti, go to go look at Haiti Liberté, L-I-B-E-R-T-E. And um, and, you know, they just don't get the credit they deserve. So so, you know, I, I owe a lot to them and and everybody who's you know, interested in uh, the the struggle for for liberation in Haiti uh, should you know be be well aware of of uh, their work. 
Excellent. Well, we'll, uh, we'll be sure to link to that uh, when I put this episode out. So um, this, as I said, been really interesting having you on here, Dan. Um, thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot for having me.